Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Imagine this. It's a hot, sticky day. You're in the car, headed to the beach. The roads are packed. They're moving at a crawl. And it's almost impossible to find a spot to park in once you get near the beach. But when you stop in at a store for a cold drink and ice cream, they've got plenty of ice cream, plenty of cold drinks. Most of us do understand intuitively that if you have something that a lot of people want and you give it away for free, you're going to run out of it. We suspend that comprehension when the topic is the roads. Michael Manville is a professor of urban planning at UCLA who has spent his career studying traffic. And he sometimes tells the story of the beach and the ice cream to illustrate this reality. When you charge for ice cream, you're unlikely to run out of it. But road space or street parking near the beach? I personally have witnessed major shortages of both of those. Manville says you see this problem on the roads in L.A., which are often stuffed with cars. And if you pull into a gas station, there will be gasoline in the gas tanks, right? What we run out of is the road space. And that's not a coincidence. Manville says there's only one long-term way to rid ourselves of the soul-crushing effects of traffic. Not ten ways or five or two, just one. You've got to price the roads. And if you're currently recoiling in horror, I hear you. But before we get into that debate, maybe the whole conversation's a moot point. What if traffic is a thing of the past? Lots of folks are going to work from home in a post-COVID world. Maybe not every day, certainly not every person. But if half of people work at home maybe half the time, that's a lot of people missing from the roads. That'll make traffic much better and driving much more enjoyable. Michael Manville from UCLA says he wouldn't bet on it. Why? Well, two reasons. First is that in cities with lots of people, there is demand out there. And much of it is just sitting around waiting. So if the roads get a little less empty, people are going to jump at the opportunity to head to the mall or to the gym or wherever. You know, for lack of a better way of putting it, word gets around, right, that, that right. the big highway is actually not moving too badly. And so as a result, maybe you will sort of jump in the car and run that errand. Maybe you'll drive the kid to school instead of letting them take the bus, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that's one thing that's going to push against telecommuting, sort of really uh, alleviating congestion on the roads. So the, the other factor that will likely push against telecommuting, sort of meaningfully reducing congestion levels, is that uh, over decades of studying people who do telecommute, one thing that has become evident is that there is a big difference between not commuting and not driving, right? Which is to say that, that deciding to work from home is not the same as deciding to lock yourself in your house. And so people still crave human interaction. I mean, that anyone who has lived through the last year knows that, right? Uh, and so what happens is, yes, you do not maybe get in your car at eight in the morning and drive to work, but maybe you do meet friends for breakfast. Maybe you that's the day you go to the dentist, you run off to the dry cleaner and so forth. And so there's, there's actually a fair amount of driving around. Maybe it's spread a little bit more throughout the day. Maybe it's on slightly different streets it doesn't really make a huge dent in the total amount of driving in most cases. You know, uh, one thing we've seen in cities all over the country is people who lived in little apartments so that they could be close to work have said, my kids are climbing the walls, like they're at home, I can't handle it. And they have 
uh, of course, not everybody, but large numbers of people have said, I'm done with this. I'm I'm moving to a place where I have more space. And a lot of employers have said, well, you only need to come back two or three days a week. And so I think many people have thought, well, okay, so I moved an hour outside the city. That's not the greatest. I don't I don't love traffic, but I only have to do it like two or three days a week, that hour in and hour back. I wonder if a lot of people thinking that and leaving their little apartments in the city um, now will make it so that it's not an hour in on the day you go in. It's like an hour and a half in or two hours in because a lot of people are thinking the same way and thinking, I can I can handle a lot if it's only a couple days a week. Yes. The nature of the congestion problem is, you know, as you describe it, which is that people tend to think about what they can tolerate and don't realize that in pursuing that course of action, they are imposing costs on other people and vice versa. And so the situation always ends up being a little bit worse than everybody imagined, right? I mean, if you wanted to summarize congestion in one sentence, it's just that because we're all in a hurry, we all slow each other down, right? And so that is uh, very much a possibility. One thing to sort of remember, though, is that congestion is also somewhat self-regulating, in the sense that when it gets really bad, the person who thought to themselves, I can handle an hour, now says, I can't handle this. And that doesn't mean they move back to their urban apartment, but it might mean they, they figure out where the commuter bus is, they get on the train, they start leaving earlier, and things like that. So it's congestion does, when it gets bad enough, trigger behaviors in people that does uh, reduce it a little bit, right? Because they do take steps to avoid it. So... Uh... You argue, have long argued, there's really only sort of one innovation here that's going to uh, fix traffic, if that's what we're looking to do. If we're looking to get into Boston, get into Manhattan faster, better, you know, the whole thing, um, uh, not sit in other people's exhaust, uh, there's really only one thing to do. What is it? You got to price the roads. It goes by different names, a congestion charge, a congestion price, but basically the idea that we uh, we treat the roads, the road network, like what it is, which is a, a network utility. And like other network utilities, be it electricity or water or, or heating fuel, when people want to use it, they pay a fee for it. Uh, and, and we could charge that fee in a way that it goes up and down depending on demand so that it would be more expensive to get on the 405 in Los Angeles at 8 a.m. than at midnight. And you would just set the set it up so that you would always have the traffic moving at a, at some relative free flow speed, like forty five or fifty miles an hour. That's what works. So, um, besides the fact that nobody wants to pay to be on the roads, um, I think one of the main uh, objections people would have is like, okay, let's say you work at a hospital, you're a doctor, you're driving to your job, it costs money to get there you're not going to like it, but you're going to be fine paying it. But let's say you're the hospital janitor. You're on your way. You're also on your way to your job. You need that job. Well, it's, I guess it's okay to, you know, ask the doctor to pay the price. They're, they're going to be, they're going to be just fine. They're not going to notice the $3 or $5 or whatever it is. But it doesn't seem fair to ask the janitor. They're hardly making any money. When they get to their job, you're going to, you know, say it's going to cost you money to get there and get home. So yes, those are very understandable concerns. And I think there's different ways to answer them. One would be that you could say the exact same thing about metering electricity 
about metering water, about metering heating fuel, right? These are all utilities that we really have no choice but to use. They're vital, they're necessary, and we charge money for them, right? And that the, the rate that we charge doesn't vary if you are a highly paid surgeon or, or a janitor. Yet we don't, we have managed to do this without creating a, a massive crisis or outcry. The second and, and maybe the more important thing to say is that, yes, there, if you were to implement a system like this in many U.S. metropolitan areas, it would be entirely appropriate to worry and do something about the fact that we do have a lot of low-income drivers. But pricing the roads comes with its own inbuilt solution to that problem, which is to say that not only would you reduce congestion, you would raise an incredible amount of revenue. And you can and should set aside some of that revenue to help people below a certain income threshold, right? And that could be done in a bunch of different ways, but, um, you know, and we have models for it from other utilities, from the food stamp program and so forth. So it's a, it's a legitimate concern, but it's not a concern that can't be overcome. And the third thing I would say is that while it's appropriate to worry about the fairness of a change like this, it is not correct to assume that the status quo is fair. Right now, because our roads are so congested all the time, the roads and the areas around them are terribly polluted. And that pollution, most of which is, or a lot of which is sort of very dangerous particulate matter, falls most heavily on people who live within 1,000, 2,000 feet of those roads who tend to be lower income people who often drive less. This is a much less visible cost of congestion, but in many ways it's the most serious cost which is that those of us who have the means to drive a lot because we don't want our roads to be priced are comfortable sitting in congestion and in a very real sense, poisoning people, often children uh, who live near the roads and, and don't have the means to use those, them as much as we do. Hmm. So take me um, into the future here a little bit. I wonder what's going to happen going forward. You live in LA. Um, how's traffic right now? It's um, <laughs> that's, that's such a loaded question. How's traffic in L.A.? It's uh, a little bit better than it was going into the pandemic, but we are rapidly coming back to our normal state. Even though I bet a lot of people in L.A. would tell you, like, I'm still working at home. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a lesson in the limits of just using more space, right, or telecommuting or something to manage congestion because it just it doesn't take that many people to really deplete the, the, the stock of a resource that's in high demand. It doesn't take that many cars to cause a traffic jam. And I, come ba I, I think back to what you said at the beginning, which is that there's, in a big city, you know, a Chicago, a Los Angeles, a New York, whatever, there's a lot of demand for being on the road. So even though it seems like, wow, there's gridlock at 8.30 a.m., uh, it sounds like you're saying, oh, there's a lot more demand than that. It's just a lot of people are like, I can't handle this. I can't handle traffic. But I, I wish I could be out there at 8.30 a.m. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you just think about when you say, okay, well, we're, so many people are going to telecommute. And so they won't be going to work at, you know, at 8 or at 9 or whatever. I mean, if you just pause and say to yourself, well, is there someone who, before the pandemic, was actually waking up at six to beat the traffic? 
Will they go to work at eight? Is there someone who was carpooling with a friend because the traffic was so miserable? Will they get in their own car because that's, after all, a little bit more convenient for them? And then you can just say to yourself, is really the only thing to do in Chicago go to work? No, of course not, right? I mean, there's just so many opportunities in these places. That's why people pay so much to be near them, right? Um, that if you open up access to them, then someone's going to take that access. Has the pandemic taught you anything? I mean, I'm sure you never thought you would live through a time where, like, the big studies that you study had no traffic. So weird. Um you know, that the 405 would have hardly anybody on it, that kind of thing. Has it taught you anything? I mean, I, I think in part, it's shown me how quickly people can adapt. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. It's shown me the extent to which the status quo really blinds people to other possibilities, right? That, that almost as soon as uh, the traffic disappeared in Los Angeles, in many parts of the city, two things happened. One was that people were very quick to go out and walk around, right? And, and to, to remark upon how nice it was for them to walk around in a, in a place that didn't have traffic everywhere and things like that. And I think on an objective level, if you had just ever said to them, like, hey, you know, this street could be a lot nicer, they would agree, but it wasn't, you know, they didn't really feel it. Um, but then pretty soon people were, were walking places and, and, and doing things that the stereotypical Los Angelino, you know, is, and of course there's some inaccuracy there, but like doesn't do. And I think the other thing that was really driven home is the extent to which our streets are designed so dangerously that when we have these five or six lane arterial streets, the only thing that prevents them from being really hazardous is the fact that so many cars are on them, right? And so when you have a, a Venice Boulevard or a Beverly Boulevard or a Van Nuys Boulevard that's five or six lanes wide and it's, it's not a highway, it has intersections and there are people trying to cross it in crosswalks uh, and suddenly all the traffic disappears, you realize that you've actually built a freeway but it's a freeway that someone drives on while someone else is trying to cross the street on foot. And I think that the pandemic really drove home for me something that I guess I knew objectively but didn't quite know in my gut how terribly dangerous and inhumanly scaled a lot of our city streets are. Michael Manville is an associate professor of urban planning at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Michael, thanks so much. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. On our website, we're going to have more about cities around the world and around the U.S. that have priced traffic. That's at innovationhub.org. And Michael says, all that reclaiming of road space that you have seen cities doing during the pandemic for, let's say, restaurant seating, he's for it. Road space in major cities, Houston and Atlanta and New York, that is valuable real estate. Too valuable, he thinks, to be solely owned by cars. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.